We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello and welcome back to the Doctor Who show for our December 2023 monthly regular normal episode. I'm Dave. <laughs> and I'm Rob. And thank you for joining us once again. Rob, it has been a busy month. It's been a busy month. It's been a busy year. We're sitting here at New Year's Eve, the cusp of a whole new year where a whole bunch more stuff is happening. It doesn't stop, Dave. It, it really hasn't. It's exciting to have Doctor Who very, very back, very, very in the news. So we've had uh, lots of hot takes. We've had our summary of the 60th anniversary specials, which included lots of really great feedback from you, our listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had our normal list makers. We've got some stuff planned for next year. But tonight we are just doing our normal... December monthly episode. We never miss a monthly, no matter how busy we are. Nope, you can set your watch by us. We have never missed one in eight years of the podcast. And so this is our December regular episode. We'll have our news, we'll have our short topics, and we will be talking in our main topic about Canine and Company, because mm -hmm. A, it's Christmas, Yes. and so why not talk about a Christmas episode, but also... If the rumours are true and the speculation is true, we are about to enter a new golden age of <laughs> Doctor Who spin-offs. Mm -hmm. So we thought, let's go back to the first one and see how that worked. Yes, I'm looking forward to that chat. Before we kick off, some really good local news. Those wonderful chaps over at the Sirens of Audio have announced they're doing another set of day events here in Australia, and they have got Wendy Padbury out to do those. She's visiting Sydney on the 10th of February, Brisbane on the 11th, and here in Melbourne on the 18th. I've booked my ticket. I've now been to the Sophie event. I've been to the Katie event they've run. They're good fan-run events. I, I'm very happy to support and endorse them. So uh, if you're in Sydney, Brisbane, or Melbourne, and you want to meet Wendy Padbury, or you just want to hang out at a day event with some local fans, uh, get along to the Sirens of Audio website and have a look. Yeah, so this is, what, their fourth. They've had Tegan, Ace, Joe, and now Zoe. Wow. That's right, yes. So yeah. they're, they're, they're obviously getting something right. Yes, absolutely. Rob, have we had any feedback on our podcast that we need to read out at the top of the show? Well, we've had loads of feedback on the podcast, but specifically from Apple Podcasts, where we read from at the start of each show, we have Sheridan Spoons from Great Britain. This came in on the 4th of December. The heading is, some of the best sci-fi chat out there, five stars. And it runs, what a treat. Two fans discussing the show they love. It sounds simple, but very few podcasts have such engaging, knowledgeable presenters. Long may they continue. Thank you very much, Mr. Spoons. Yes, or Ms. It's a Sheridan. It's a Sheridan. You see, I just think of Sheridan as being a bloke because of Captain Sheridan, but that was his, <laughs> that was his surname, wasn't it? That's correct. Okay, well, Mr. or Mrs. or Miss or Ms. Spoons, uh, thank you very much for the, the wonderful feedback. We do appreciate that. Thank you. Now, we'll crack straight into the news because, of course, lots of things are happening. We've just had the series of episodes broadcast. There's more to come. The ratings are in for the 60th anniversary specials. Uh, and these are the consolidated one-week ratings, I believe, Rob? 
Yes, they are. They are. So the Star Beast got 7.6 million, Wild Blue Yonder 7.1, and the Giggle 6.85. And we've now got the Overnights for Ruby Road, which got 4.7 million, which seems lower, but on Christmas Day, that was the third most watched program, the King's Christmas Address, of course, being number one. Thank you, Your Majesty. Yeah, and of course, that is just an overnight. So if people are comparing them in their heads to the specials ratings you just read out, which were seven day ratings, of course, they're going to be different. Yes, ab- absolutely. Not not trying to make a comparison there. Um, two quick thoughts from me on the ratings for the anniversary specials, Rob. The first is averaging about seven million is pretty good, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second is I'm a little surprised the Giggle got the lowest rating i would have thought beforehand wild blue yonder would be because it's sort of the middle one without a really big hook i I thought more people would perhaps tune into the giggle for neil patrick harris or for shooty but you know maybe a a decline is natural you have any thoughts rob yeah look I, i know people don't like to hear this but if you put this on a graph it is going down from episode to episode we're not just talking overnights. These are seven days. You'd, you'd think if Doctor Who is back and people have caught the first one and the second one, they'd be really inspired to see the third one. But that wasn't the case. It lost a bunch of viewers between the first and the third episode. There's no denying that. The numbers do not lie. That said, as you've pointed out, you know Doctor Who is sitting near the top of the day whenever it airs. So these are still good ratings for television in general. But within the ratings, fans were lost across these three shows. Yes, I think I think I think that's correct. And and the real test, of course, is going to be when the new series comes out next year. Oh, absolutely. And we get uh, what it's a run of eight episodes, I think, for Shooty's first season. We'll see what happens then. Yeah, absolutely. But no, very very healthy. Uh, ratings there. Rob, piece of news from you. Yeah, I mean, we spoke about this briefly on the hot take for The Church on Ruby Road. Of course, it's the trailer for the next season, but some of you might not have heard that hot take episode. If so, shame on you. But (laughs) (laughs) just noting, yes, there's a trailer for the next series of Doctor Who. You can see it on YouTube. And wasn't there some neat stuff in this trailer? I mean, the Beatles episode has the Beatles in it. We see Mel with... Uh, shooty on that scooter that we saw in spy images some time back where we're back in avengers tower rose the new rose is there so i don't know if she's got a job with unit who knows lots of random shots it looks good it looks exciting i'm genuinely looking forward to the the season and i mean it when i say genuinely every new era has this first season where it can really lay things down and it's such an exciting time and i'm here for it you know no matter what era it is yeah, absolutely. We're getting that sense of excitement back. I think we are back to the RTD showman style of promotion rather than the Chris Chibnall, I'm telling you nothing style of promotion. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> which which is helpful. Uh, yes, look, the trailer looked really good. Uh, I, I mentioned as well seeing Jonathan Groff there was a big deal for me because I'm a big, big Jonathan Groff fan, and so it's good to have him in Doctor Who. The only thing that sort of is a little bit disappointing is that for us watching on Disney+, Plus. There was no trailer at the end of any of the episodes or a season trailer at the end of the special each time we've had to go out to YouTube and look for them, Um, which I guess is kind of the way that Disney operates, but it is a shame. One interesting thing we did get on Disney, which maybe the UK people aren't aware of, is towards the end of the episode, it sort of faded out and was like, new era, new who. And it was almost like an ad for Disney. Then it faded back in to the last bit of the episode with Mrs. Flood. 
Yes, I wasn't sure if that was a Disney thing or an everybody thing, but that was interesting. I'm assuming it was a Disney thing, because it wasn't really like a BBC thing. Oh, who knows? It, it felt very Disney to me when I watched it. Yeah, same. But, you know, the BBC is feeling more Disney every day, so who knows? Indeed. Um, speaking of the Christmas special, The Church on Ruby Road, the novelisation is going to be out in hardback form on the 25th of January. We have had announced novelizations of the three specials. This is now the fourth one coming. Now, I don't know whether this means that novelizations are going to be a more regular thing and we're going to get them for the series as well or whether it's just the four specials that are getting them but watch this space i think that could be quite exciting yeah it'd be interesting if they did start doing them for everything as i said the next series is um eight episodes that would be eight novels whereas towards the end of the nsa run uh they were doing about three novels a year that seemed to be all they could sustain in terms of interest so i don't know if they'd suddenly leap to putting out say eight in a year which they'd have to do to keep up with new stuff coming out year on year now under this new rtd regime so we'll see but i think it's a good thing even though i won't be buying this or reading it i think it's marvelous to have books out and for especially the younger fans to to read books because it's how we did it when we were young fans and it only benefited us i think it can only benefit young fans today if they pick up a book and read no absolutely i I think many of us grew up reading target novels and if a new generation is reading some that's really phenomenal so yeah excited about that news big time dave i'll finish off the news here because doctor who season 20 blu-rays have been pushed back in australia from february to April next year and I've made a video on this so people who sub to our YouTube channel may have already seen this news already but basically I noticed the other day when I was poking around on the Madman B2B site looking to see if they'd put on the the 60th anniversary specials or the Daleks in colour or even the Underwater Menace seeing if they'd put any of those up and they haven't I noticed that uh, Madman has pushed season 20 back Uh, in the catalogue so rather than offering it to retailers in late february for an rrp of 160 dollars it's now offering it in late april at the same price so what was a five month delay from the uk edition coming out is now a seven month delay and frankly when you can step up to amazon australia right now and buy the uk version for 114 dollars I don't know why anyone out there would be waiting and waiting and waiting to get the local edition, which will cost $46 more to boot. And if the other local releases are any indication, the local one here will be in inferior packaging. So you're paying more for inferior packaging. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Folks, go and buy it if you haven't bought it already, if you're in ANZ. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. It's a great shame, but I do have to agree with you. Look, there are always going to be those very casual sort of people who aren't desperate for the latest Blu-ray and right on release. And at some point they'll walk into JB and they'll see the new Doctor Who Blu-ray and then they'll wait a couple of months till it's discounted and they'll get it at a reasonable price a year after some other fans, but they'll get it and they'll be happy. But yes, I I think in the same way that broadcasting of Who has uh, overseas has really sort of learnt the lesson that Mm. if you're not doing it pretty much straight after the UK, then people are just going to go to the UK and get a copy. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same with physical media. If you're not doing it relatively quickly after the UK, then why are you bothering? And also those days of walking into JB and buying discs are sort of coming to an end anyway. If anyone's been to a JB lately, you'll see the section for DVD and Blu-ray has 
halved, maybe quartered, depending on where you live. It's just becoming not a thing very quickly. No, no. And we'll talk more about our streaming and, and the future of television mm. in a moment. But yes. thank you, Rob. That is the news. Uh, we have some short topics this month. And in my case, I have two topics all about watching a program called Doctor Who. <laughs> Very so, good. <laughs> so I'll kick us off. Look, as I promised at the end of our last monthly episode, which feels like so long ago, but was only a month. Yeah. And uh, we asked what we were going to watch for the anniversary. I said, look, I'm going to watch The Toymaker as in um, part four of the Celestial Toymaker, and I did, and I enjoyed it. And I then kept going on the disc, and I watched the Daleks Master Plan list episodes, because I love the Daleks Master Plan. And then I thought, well, what else is there that is still standalone? The Wheeling Space, and I watched that, and, and I really like The Wheeling Space. I think it's a really underrated adventure. Look, it's not Tomb of the Cybermen, it's not The Invasion, but it's a good story. And uh, I, I think that probably its weakest episode is one of the ones that survives episode three which is a shame but I think it's a good story and, mm. and I felt inspired by that I thought I want to watch more Patrick Troughton and Cybermen so I put on the invasion nice and I think this could be the first time I've sat down and watched the invasion including the animation from start to finish since I bought the DVD mm-hmm. um, which is a, is quite a while because it came out quite a while ago yeah um, this is a story I used to watch quite regularly but of course we never had episodes one and four other than as audios or the 30 second Nick Courtney commentary on the VHS which you know was a big <laughs> deal in the 90s but you know that yep. was all it was I really enjoyed it look it, it is a classic story it's in my top two or three Troutons. It's just incredible. Tobias Vaughn is a wonderful, wonderful villain. It really feels like a big international adventure. They they even go to Russia to get Russia to help out, which again mm-hmm. just makes things feel really international. It was interesting though watching it as eight episodes over two discs with the animation. I did realize that episode four particularly doesn't add a lot to the story and that when you watch all of these four episodes those first four episodes sort of in a row you realize just how many times they go back to Vaughn's establishment and escape from Vaughn's establishment they go back there to check something out and <laughs> you know they do go back and forth a few times which when you when you take out episodes one and four you don't notice that happening quite so much yeah but the animations are excellent really good story really enjoyed that and then I thought you know what I'm enjoying this so much I'll kick on to the next story along, which was the Crotons, another one I haven't sat down and watched probably since we did our season six deep dive, which was several years ago now, maybe four or five years ago now. Yeah, wow. And I enjoyed this more than I thought I would. The Crotons has got its faults. I think all fans know the history when the prison in space fell through and Dave Maloney said, I can't make that and I'm not making that. And Terrence Dick said, well, here's a script I've got from a guy called Robert Holmes that I just happen to have in my back drawer. Maloney's gone, yep, I can make that in a hurry. Let's do that. And, and look, some of it looks like it was made in a hurry. Some of the sets don't really match what's going on in the script and don't match mm. each other. Um, you can see some of the production design is very, very rushed. And look, we get that. But it's certainly not Holmes's best story, but you can really start to see some Holmes ideas coming out there, that sort of little rebellious streak he has, that slightly authoritarian streak he has, the cheeky streak he has, um, the way he sort of makes fun of the Crotons is really good. It was really interesting watching it this time. I really picked up on the political side of what Holmes is doing there, where you've got Selrus, who 
wants to maintain the status quo as much as he can because he's in charge un- under the status quo and he's sort of very happy to like, oh, the Doctor wants to throw himself under a bus. Will you go over there, Doctor? I'll just go back to running my society now. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's sort of lots of that. And it's, it's only really when he realises he's lost the support of the, of the people. He's like, oh, well, I'll, ch- I'll mix things up as well, but let's do it my way and I'll, can we just go back to the status quo, please? Yeah. Whereas Elik wants to shake up the status quo and free people, not because he loves the people or wants anything, but because if the status quo is shaken up, he gets power. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it's Thara who just wants to be nice to people and frees people because he's sick of his friends being killed by the Crotons, is the one that actually gets power. And I just thought that was a, you know, a theme that Holmes is going to come back to a lot about these sort of power structures that you see really, really early there. Um, and as for the Crotons, when they first came on screen... I thought this is such a good concept. And, you know, they look really, really good. Mm. And then they move mm. and you go, oh, and how many 60s monsters are there that just, even some 70s ones, that just yeah. look great on a piece of paper and as a photograph. And then they have to move and interact. You go, oh, what a shame. Yeah. Well, the, the Wirren is a good example. The Wirren is a fantastic example of that. Um, and, and like the Wirren, the Crotons are very clearly just a box, you know, put on top of somebody with no legs. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that was good. And look, I also watched The Seeds of Death as well. Um, I've spoken about that story before. I love it. I think it's the best Ice Warriors story. It again feels international. It's that great 60s futuristic take on the world. So I watched some Troughton and I had just had a really good time doing it. Oh, that's nice. I mean, that all kicked off with what you were watching for the 60th. And on our last episode, monthly, that is, I said, I'm going to watch, I think, Kays of Androzani. But do you know what I ended up watching on the 60th, Dave? No. I watched a one-hour Ian Briggs interview from uh, one of the Doctor's behind-the-scenes DVDs. Oh, nice. Yeah, so a, a, a bit strange, a little different, but uh, it was quite enjoyable. Yeah, no, I've got a lot of time for Ian Briggs, so that would have been pretty cool. Yeah, it was. A short topic from you, Rob. Yeah, Dave, we're talking about physical media a moment ago, so I'm just going to riff on that for a moment. Around the time of the 60th, there was... (laughs) I say the time of the 60th like it was so long ago. It was just last month. Uh, There was a flurry of conversation online in a few different places. uh, Some of the Facebook groups I'm on, for example, about, oh, my God, how can I see X episode? How can I see Y episode? You know, people were suddenly very thirsty to see classic episodes. And these people were turning themselves inside out and having meltdowns, particularly over trying to stream the classic era now in different countries around the world. And what I found extraordinary about many of these conversations is that before streaming was popular, which isn't that long ago, relatively speaking, if you stop and think about it, it was perfectly normal and common for fans to own home media. The answer to how do I watch Doctor Who? was simply um, watch your DVDs, you freak. You know, (laughs) no more, no less. If you liked a property and you wanted to watch it, you bought it. End of story. And for the past five years, I'd say, or slightly more, the trendy answer to that retort has been, oh, well, what's a DVD? You know, usually with some kind of smirk as if the person being replied to has somehow foolishly kept all their home media and is now some sort of -of out-of-touch caveman who's worthy of mocking. Yet now the birds are coming home to roost, Dave. All of us who said, keep your physical media, or even those who just kept their physical media and didn't go into bat for it online, probably (laughs) because they were worried someone would call them a dinosaur or something. 
we're all increasingly standing around these days during these conversations and just shrugging. Like, people are going absolutely feral that they can't watch The Two Doctors or Resurrection of the Daleks or whatever right now. And we're just like, yeah. Um, so, Dave, physical media. Yeah, I think this is a particularly UK issue because outside of the UK, Doctor Who hasn't ever been really that easy to watch. Certainly classic Doctor Who has been very hard to watch on streaming. And so yeah. for me, I, it's it's one show, and Blake Seven's another, that I've always defaulted to just having the DVDs and pulling out the DVDs. Um, stuff like The West Wing or Buffy or Babylon 5, yes, I've got my hard media copies and I'm actually going to go and buy the, the new Babylon 5 big upgraded box set when we finish this conversation, in fact. Nice. Um, but, 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 you know, I... If, if I want to watch The West Wing, I'll default to streaming because it's easy, but I've got the DVDs. But, but Doctor Who, I've never defaulted to streaming because it hasn't been on any streaming service that I've had. Mm-hmm. I've never had BritBox. I, I think I looked at it once very quickly and realised that, no, I don't want to rewatch all of Only Fools and Horses. And if you don't want to do that, there's not much else on there. So <laughs> I didn't bother didn't bother getting it. Whereas, I mean, the, the UK's had a few more options. But I, I would never throw away my physical media of the shows that I really, really love. Occasionally, I prune my my physical media down. I did go through and do a big clean-out just before the summer of all my movies. Um, you know, there were lots of movies where I'd bought, oh, I've seen that movie, I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's $20 at JB, I'll, I'll buy it. And I chucked it on once and I haven't watched it in 15 years. Mm. And I've sort of thought, well, okay, this doesn't need to take up shelf space, that can go. But no, the, the, the shows I love, no, they, they're staying on my shelf. Yeah, I, I find when it comes to movies, they're more sort of transitory, unless it's like a Star Wars movie or an Indiana Jones movie or just some big franchise that you grew up with and loved. Movies are kind of like come and go, but it's the TV series. I feel if someone has been a big fan of something, you, you, you're mad not to have bought it, I think, honestly. Yeah, look, I'm with you. Um, streaming is going to get more and more complicated, as we're going to discuss a bit further in a moment. And so, yeah, yeah, no, I think I think... For all the advances we're making, physical media is worthwhile. Yes. Speaking of physical media, I finally got around to watching the season twenty Blu-ray, which oh nice took a little while to arrive in Australia, and that that you know it's, we always go through that thing in Australia of all these UK people. Oh, my box sets arrived. We go okay. Well, give us a couple of weeks. It'll get there. You know, it's going to come through the canal. <laughs> um, and yeah, hopefully there are no Houthi pirates stopping mm, it. Mm, um, yeah, Houthi pirates stealing your season twenty, Dave. Yes, and no, that's not a not, not a plot from Love and War. The, the other sort of Houthi. <laughs> so yeah, look, it finally arrived. I've been very busy these last months, and I I haven't wanted to just sort of rush through this. I wanted to take some time and and really sit down and enjoy season twenty because I like season twenty. And I'm not going to go through each story individually now that I've watched all but the King's Demons. And I need to watch The Five Doctors as well, but that's not part of season 20. It's a standalone special. Correct. Damn it. Um, Correct. <laughs> and I will watch that over summer. But it was really interesting watching the season back properly, all sort of one after the other over a couple of weeks. The ideas in this season are really, really good. The The central big ideas at the heart of stuff like Snake Dance and Mordron and Terminus and Enlightenment are, are really good. Even the Ark of Infinity, I think, is a really good adventure. But so many of them are just made really badly. And that mm. really stood out to me watching this. The direction in most of them is pretty ordinary. In fact, I think apart from Enlightenment, the direction in Season 20 is universally really, really flat and dull. Mm. Um, the music, I think, is actually pretty terrible 
all the way across it. A few people, when I've tweeted this, have defended the Mordred Undead score. It doesn't work for me. It's too big and too clangy. And it's a real shame that after season 18, where the, the Radiophonic Workshop took these on, they really tried to do these unique and different styles for each story. And you know, stuff like State of Decay and Legopolis and Truck and Full Circle all have these wonderful different types of scores. Season 20 just feels like lots of people sitting there in front of an 80s keyboard hitting the keys really hard and just making like, bah, 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 you know, just yeah. sort of lots of noise. And, and even Enlightenment, which I think is a really nice score, I still think is let down by the fact it's clearly been done on some sort of 80s synthesizer. And I just, yeah. I just wish that they could have done actual instruments for that. Yes. Um, I think it would have just made such a big difference. So, yeah, look, I've enjoyed it for the most part. I still think Snake Dance is incredibly dull and nothing happens in the entire story. Um, I enjoyed Ark Infinity, Good Adventure, some other good adventures in there. Terminus is still underrated, is my belief. So, yeah, great ideas. But for, for JMT's third year, and this is the guy that we always fate as the master of the production. You know, he, was, he wasn't a good storyteller, but he's a great producer. I sort of go, I think he's let his foot off the pedal a bit here. Yeah, look, that's fair. And it is my third favourite of three Davo seasons. I love season 21 the most. You've got Tegan and Turlow there. You've got great stories. I love season 19. You've got Adric and Nyssa in there as well with Tegan. This one's that middle season where some of the stories don't land and it's it always just comes third for me, Dave. So... Yeah, I haven't actually gone back and watched the Blu-ray. I've watched little bits and pieces on, on the set so far. But uh, it's tricky. I can see what JNT was trying to do with this season. It just doesn't work. Yeah, he just doesn't quite have the cattle in the production office to really deliver mm. what he wants. Um, and my final comment, because I have watched all of the, um, the behind-the-scenes stuff again and I've watched the behind-the-sofa stuff and everything, is I, I really do disagree with Mark Strickson about the introduction of his character. Now, Mark is a fantastic actor and I think he just hits the ground running so well. One of the highlights of Mordred Undead is the Doctor very quickly realising that this guy is not a school kid from 20th century Earth, mm. and Turlo very quickly realising the Doctor's realised and just drops the pretense, and sort of by episode three, they're just having very casual conversations about the warpalypse, and, and it's like, it's like, well, okay, this is, this is really interesting. And the way the Doctor clearly knows something's not right, but just wants to keep him close, and there's a really good relationship between them right from the start. And, and Mark always goes on about, oh, I spent all these stories trying to kill the Doctor, and it became a real problem. It's like, that didn't happen, Mark. It no. was only two stories, because you spend more than undead trying to kill him and introduce him. That works really well. Terminus, the whole plot is predicated on him trying to kill the Doctor by sabotaging the TARDIS. So that was an active part of the story. And, and by the end of it, that's where he's like, no, I can't do this, I can't do this. And Enlightenment is all about the, I need to break my contract with the Black Guardian. So yeah. this, this idea of, you know, I spent a whole, so many stories trying to kill the Doctor and it was a stupid idea. No, Mark, that didn't happen. It's a great story for conventions. I get that, but no. Yeah, there are way more stories where he's not trying to do that. Exactly. Mm. Dave, I'll finish up with uh, something that I recently blasted out on X and uh, you seem to see something in these tweets uh, and want to build on them. So I think I'll just simply read the tweets. How about that? Yeah, I, I saw your tweet and I think we were about to have an online debate. I thought, well, hang on, we're recording in two days. Let's, <laughs> let's do it on a microphone. Yeah, and so I'll join them all together here. 
Wondering when Disney will realise it would make more money creating content from its IPs and selling it to other streamers, as well as licensing its back catalogue to them, rather than trying to run its own streaming business. The penny will surely drop one day for it. Because here's the thing, presently, everyone wants to be a streamer and everyone's chasing growth. We can already see how unsustainable that is. Rather than continuing to throw money on the bonfire, the smart thing for Disney, swimming in content and IPs, is to license it all. So rather than trying to find zillions of customers and hope they keep paying those tiny monthly fees, forget all of that. Just sign mega deals with a handful of big streamers and not be reliant on the whims or even the financials of so many individuals. A total no-brainer. Yeah, so I read that and I really disagreed. (laughs) (laughs) Rip in, Dave, rip in. So here's my thinking. Streaming is the future. We we are not going back to terrestrial TV. That's not going to be a thing that happens. People like to be able to go to a streaming provider or two or three or seven and watch the content they want to watch. I think we do agree that the current model is unsustainable and particularly as the economy struggles a bit and inflation's high and we have a cost of living crisis across the Western world, people are saying, well, I can't afford to spend $150 a month on seven, eight, nine streaming services. I'm going to consolidate down to one or two. Mm-hmm. I get that. But from Disney's point of view and from Netflix's point of view and from Amazon's point of view, somebody wants to be there at the end of that crunch to be one of the big remaining streaming services. And from Disney's point of view, yeah, okay, they could take the short-term gain of, let's just sell all our content and have lots of money selling our content, but then they kind of deal themselves out of the game in the really long term. Whereas Disney would, I imagine, be saying, look, we, we can get through the streaming wars because we have theme park money we have merchandise money and we have all sorts of other streams coming through in the same way that amazon prime probably thinks they can get through the streaming wars because they sell a whole lot of stuff they have multiple revenue streams coming through so they can kind of get through it Um, whereas netflix if netflix isn't selling content netflix isn't making money so so disney must surely be thinking let's make sure we're one of the survivors and when we go from 20 or 30 streaming providers down to six, let's be one of the six. And yep, we haven't made as much money in the short term, but for the next generation, we're sustainable and we're there and we're doing this and we're part of the future. Hmm. The question is how much bark do they want to lose in the meantime by sitting it out and how long will shareholders put up with that? To me, Disney has the raw materials, just like if you make sugar. If you make sugar, there's lots of people who want to buy it from you to make all sorts of things. Or if you make steel, there's lots of people who want to buy steel for all sorts of things, whether it's to build skyscrapers or build cars or whatever. I think Disney has the raw materials. I think they can sit back and just let all these companies do their own thing and and crash and burn and rise and fall, whatever, and just not get involved and just not lose the money. I... Maybe it's just a more cautious approach or a more tactical approach, but that that's how I'd do it. I'd just sit back and let all of these guys smash each other in the meantime. Meanwhile, just making money for jam with content you already own. Yeah, but you, you say money for jam, but if people are willing to pay you an annual or a monthly fee to just have you exist, that could be money for jam as well. Yeah, but you're relying on them. And if they give up the service because they disagree with you politically on something or they just don't have the money in this cost of living crisis or whatever, they're gone. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. My comment is that a number of these are going to go, and I think Disney is betting that they're not going to be one of them. Mm. And, and at some point they can emerge to rule the survivors. Netflix may be one that survives or it may not because it hasn't got those revenue, revenue streams. We're already hearing stuff like that the Paramount Plus might be looking to merge with somebody else. And a lot yeah, of these Warner ones, Brothers, I think. Yeah, that Warner Brothers, I think. You know, a, a lot of these U- US sort of stations where they have, you know, three shows that people want to watch and people go, well, okay, well, I've now watched that show. I haven't mm. watched you again for three months. I'm cancelling it. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what do these smaller networks have to really offer? You know, okay, I went and watched Frasier on Paramount Plus. Mm-hmm. Well, until there's another Star Trek series coming, why do I need Paramount Plus for? So, yeah. you know, is, is it going to be sustainable? No. So so something like Paramount Plus will probably fold or merge. I've never seen Paramount Plus as desirable at all. Look, I, I got it. I did a free trial because I got watched some of the, the Trek series. Right. Paramount Plus is one that I do sort of... I, I subscribe for a couple of months, watch the series I want to watch, and then unsubscribe until there's more. Fair. Um, and, and this one, I look, I stuck around for an extra month because I wanted to watch the new series of Frasier. But now that that's done, until there's more Trek, I'm not going to subscribe to Paramount Plus. Yeah. Uh, whereas Disney, I pay an annual subscription because, you know, it's got New Who, it's got Star Wars, it's got Marvel, it's got The Simpsons, it's got a whole lot of news shows that I enjoy watching. And so I, I, I know I'm going to get a year's value out of my 140 bucks, whatever it is, for Disney. So I subscribe to Disney. I subscribe to Netflix because there are regular news shows on Netflix that I want to watch. Mm. Um, and they've also got a really good back catalogue. Um, but, but adding to that and talking about new shows, and I'll talk about a couple more that I have watched when we get to what we've been watching at the end of this, but I did check out the first two episodes of Percy Jackson that dropped because mm-hmm. I thought this is, as we've been discussing over the last few months, this is a really good example of what new Doctor Who is up against. You know, this this is what new Doctor Who is being compared to. Stuff like Percy, Percy Jackson, the mooted new Harry Potter series that's going to come out. And it was really, really visually impressive. Okay. You know, there is clearly a lot of money being spent on this. And the other thing is, having seen the Percy Jackson movie, which is, you know, 110 minutes or so thereabouts, um, to do one book. This this is doing eight episodes, I think. Maybe ten, but I think it's eight episodes to do one book. And so they go into a lot more depth and a lot more detail. And they really bring these characters to life. And, and I just sort of thought, yeah, okay, this is what Doctor Who needs to do to be competitive. It needs to look really, really good. And it needs to really bring characters to life and have you invested. Because that's that's the competition now. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Did I convince you, Rob? Oh, Dave, I think I think we're looking at this from from different angles. So I don't think we'll ever agree. You know, I uh-huh. think from from our own point of view, from a certain point of view, as Obi Wan Kenobi would say, I think we're both right. <laughs> How about that. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Listeners, let us know what you think. There are short topics. That's our news. It's now time to get into our main topic of the month. Canine and Company. Yes. A little spin-off show that was first broadcast on the 28th of December 1981. It got 8.4 million viewers, Rob. Wow. The way fans talk about it, you would have thought it got about 3 million viewers. Or three people and a Dachshund called Bernard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it got 8.4 million viewers. Now, it's really interesting watching the material about this. J&T clearly thought he had a spin-off series here. Yeah. But no one was ever going to sign off on a spin-off series, so he did the whole backdoor pilot thing really before backdoor pilots were a thing in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Mork rocking up in an episode of Happy Days. 
Um, and then you go, hey, let's make a series about this guy. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, JNT, we've said this so many times, he knew how to use that system, how to game that BBC system. He, he did, but I think the fact he never told anyone else making it that it needed to be a series. Mm, that might come up. that comes up. So uh, that's the background. Rob, when did you first see Canine and Company? I had to really think about this, Dave, because you very kindly said that you'd ask this question. I would have first seen this in my early years of local club life. So around 87, 88, that sort of time. I was 12-ish, 13-ish. And... At the time, I, I didn't like it much. I'm not big on canine at all, and although I always liked Sarah, having her own adventure without the Doctor seemed like a waste of time. To me, the theme music was corny, and the production generally came across, oh, this was a failure from years ago because we'd taken on that received fan wisdom. So it felt like in the club we were looking at it as a bit of a curio, a weird failure, that it wasn't particularly okay to like. <laughs> so that that's sort of my first brush with it. Yeah, I, I remember very similar vibes in fandom of, of real don't bother, this was a joke, it was terrible, nobody watched it, which as we said wasn't true. No. I don't remember seeing it at a club or on a bootleg copy, it's very possible I did, but I don't remember it. I do remember buying the VHS when that came out in the mid-90s, and, and, and I do have memories that I was quite excited to get this VHS, and, and I suspect that's because maybe I hadn't seen it. Mm. around the club and I was quite keen to see this for the first time so it's quite possible I did see this when I was 14 or 15 for the first time on VHS yeah interesting very interesting we've talked a bit about those perceptions going in did you still hold those perceptions before you watched this of this is a bit of a joke oh well going into it this time I knew that I'd seen it probably three or four no probably three times as an adult and thought it was perfectly fine on those rewatches as an adult. It's not some hidden gem. It's not something that blows the world away. But I remember I thought it was a perfectly fine thing. And it's always fun to watch some old, early 1980s television. So my perceptions going in this time weren't negative at all. They weren't like back from the club days. I, I knew I'd rewatch this and I knew I was fine with it. So I was, I was quite comfy popping this on actually from my season 18 Blu-ray set. Yeah, I didn't realise it was on the season 18 Blu-ray set. I, I relied on my V8, not my VHS copy, my DVD <laughs> copy. Um, and I probably haven't watched it since I bought the DVD copy, which is quite a few years ago now. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of this I actually didn't remember. I actually couldn't remember who the baddies were. I couldn't remember sort of all the plot strands and the like. And, oh, okay. and, and again, most of my memory was based on stuff I've read. So it was like, this is a failure. This is absolutely terrible at setting up a, a, a series. What were they thinking? It's not as good as the Sarah Jane Adventures. And oh my God, the Sarah Jane Adventures do everything right. And this does everything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and as I watched it, I thought, this is okay. Yeah. You're right. It's not a hidden classic. It's not a hidden gem. I'm not going to go that far. But as a little piece of very standalone television, I thought it was okay. It's got its faults, and we'll talk about those. But, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. I didn't mind it at all. Now, before we kick on any further, Dave, we've been calling it K9 and Company, although Technically, the episode is called A Girl's Best Friend. So what, what should we call it for the rest of this review? Look, I've always called it Canine and Company. But, but again, it's that, that JNT hope that, you know, there would be a whole series called Canine and Company and this would be A Girl's Best Friend and yeah. the next one would be something else and the next one would be something else. I've always called it Canine and Company. 
Fair enough. Uh, a fun fact. I often pull out fun facts, Dave. We should mention to our listeners that this is the first Christmas-themed Doctor Who universe special that's out there. I mean, I'm discounting the Feast of Stephen and the Daleks Master Plan because that's just a regular episode of the Daleks Master Plan. So this was the first Doctor Who Christmas special, and it predates the the Christmas specials we got starting in 2005 by basically a quarter of a century. So again, JNT a bit ahead of his time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Let's start with the music because. Ah, okay. <laughs> look, I think one of the more unfortunate parts of this is that the first thing you see, the first thing you hear, the first take you get of Canine and Company is that opening titles, and they are terrible. Mm-hmm. It, it's very clear they only had about three shots of Liz Sladen that they had to get a full set of titles out of. They didn't really have a lot to do. I suspect had they actually made a full series, we would have seen a lot more work done on that. Yeah. Um, now, are you aware of Ian Levine's comments about the opening titles music, Rob? I am, Dave. I am. This. Do you, this... Do you, do you believe him? <sighs> It's always hard to tell when people say stuff after the fact. I mean, to say that it was meant to be an orchestral score and he did a rough electronic arrangement and somehow Peter Howell was like, oh yeah, good enough, and that became the theme. I, I don't see how this would have an orchestral score when K9 is such an electronic sort of device. The electronic theme music would seem to be what they would have wanted from the start, to my mind. But he is out there saying this, I know. So, oh, I'm I'm on the fence here. I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. There, there is a certain amount of believability to it because it is Ian Levine. Mm-hmm. I can certainly understand his comment when you listen to this theme now that it's sort of very one track, you know, synthesizer music. And and whether you did a full orchestra or you just did a bit more sort of work with a few extra tracks and a few different themes and some you know, chords or whatever. And, you know, you, you can sort of see that da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, you can see how that would work as a properly orchestrated or scored piece of music mm-hmm. a lot better. I can also say that Ian Levine is somebody who, for the, you know, up until the present day, is always doing these projects that are never quite as good as he wants them to be Mm. or that, you know, he thinks that the world's going to fall in line for him and it doesn't. So I can imagine Ian Levine, this public figure that we know in Doctor Who fandom, thinking to himself, this is going to be so good that they'll get an orchestra to score it. Right. And Peter Howe getting in and going, dude, I have 10 quid to make this. (laughs) So no, you're getting a synthesizer and that's it. And, and, you know, I can can actually imagine Ian Levine having that disconnect. So so I I think it's probably... Like, what was in his mind and what was in Peter Howe's mind were very different things. That's not unusual with Ian. But I do agree with him that it's not the tune itself that's terrible. It's the execution of it. And I can imagine a well-executed version of it. Mm. Well, look, the way he describes it as, uh, you know, I just sent in my, my demo arrangement and they used it. It's almost like an apology when people have turned around and said, well, this this sounds crap. He, he's then saying, oh, well, it was just the demo. It was just the demo. that They used the demo. <laughs> You know, so... Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is an unfortunate opening moment for the program. Yeah, I think Hal's main thing was to record John Leeson saying, K9, <laughs> and, and, and inserting it. <laughs> I, I do love the anecdote about um, John Leeson being told you have to come in and help us sing the theme tune. And he's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Oh, I haven't done one of those before. And he comes in and they, Peter Hale's like, right, can you just say K9, 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 K9. Good, right, done, off you go. <laughs> yeah, lunch. <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, it, look, it, it, it all it all does give 
the feeling of this being really done on a budget. Yeah. Yeah. Even more so than Doctor Who was being done. And, and the shots of Liz Slade, and as you say, she's she's fanging around in this little Peugeot or whatever it is. She's running around in Olivia Newton-John workout gear. And then she looks whimsically at the camera. They're about the three shots they've got. <laughs> and the drinking wine one, which oh, yes. is about to crack up laughing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It just feels like we have no money to make a title sequence. No. So let's just quickly go out for an hour, get a couple of shots, put them together and hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, not a not a good opening, but I think not a fair opening for the show either. Mm-hmm. Liz Sladen. Yeah, Liz Sladen, she's back. And when Sarah Jane first appears in this story, Dave, to me, she seems very haughty. It's how it comes across to me. That's about the best way I can put it. Not quite unlikable, but she seems to have a bit of an attitude when she sort of rolls into town and rolls into the house. By the end of the show, it's not there, and she's much more like Sarah Jane, and that's fine. But this time around on this rewatch, I picked up on this, and I'm not sure I'd ever really detected it before. She just blazes in like she owns the place, and yeah, I I found there was an attitude at the start of this which seemed a bit un-Sarah. I don't know if I'm going to throw you with this, because it, it is such a weird thought, even for me, but I had it this time around. Yeah, I didn't have that as a note, but I, I agree with what you're saying now that you say it. I can imagine Liz Sladen as an actress saying to herself, right, well, time has passed since I last played Sarah Jane. So I need to show the audience that this is not the Sarah Jane, the young girl who traveled with the doctor. This is Sarah Jane, who's a bit older, more mature, has a more serious career. It's a very actressy thing to do, whereas the audience probably isn't thinking about that at all. Mm. It's like, I just want to see the character that I like. Yeah. She's like, no, 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 the backstory's changed and, and my, my approach is different and I'm going to do this. And I think there is an attempt to sort of go, this is an older Sarah and a wiser Sarah and a more confident Sarah. And as you say, it's kind of a slightly more aloof and haughtier Sarah. But again, as she just has to start running around the countryside with a robot dog, chasing bad guys, you have just get back to Sarah being Sarah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And here's a funny thing that grabs me sometimes, Dave. It's probably best we talk about this at the start. I don't know where else to mention it. It's when I realised that Canine and Sarah weren't actually contemporaries. I mean, yes. they're both memorable characters from the Tom Baker era. And relatively speaking, that's a finite period of television. Yet they were never together in it. And I think we get this skewed idea. I, I, I say we, like the, the whole audience, maybe. I don't know. With things like The Five Doctors, where she's there with K-9 and, of course, School Reunion, which many New Who fans will know. But when you're watching this and she uncrates K-9, she has no idea what the hell K-9 is. And I always... I always have this like mini light bulb moment. Oh, that's right. These two don't actually know one another at this stage. It always catches me by surprise. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about how J&T put this together, where he really just has sort of looked at the Doctor Who toy box and gone, who's a really popular companion everybody loved? Oh, Sarah Jane Smith. Let's get her back. What's something else that the kids really love? Because we want to sell this to kids. Oh, kids love K9. Mm-hmm. Let's get him back. And you can imagine someone going, oh, well, they would never get... Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We're just going to put these things in there. Um, what else do Doctor Who fans like? Oh, isolated villages. Oh, and they're cheap to film in as well. Let's put it in an isolated village. You can see the bits of logic coming together yeah. there. Witchcraft. Um, that was big in the demons. Yeah, and you know that that's been in the news a lot in the late seventies. Let's let's do witchcraft. Yeah, you can you can see the bits of the toy box that he's putting together, and in typical J and T fashion, 
all those bits are really valuable and really worthwhile. You know, Sarah is a popular companion canine, and was popular with kids. Stuff filmed in English villages does tend to go well with audiences. Has there been a sit down and go, do all these elements work together and how are they going to work together? That to me is less so. Mm. Well, the storyline is relatively thin when you break it down. I mean, (laughs) Sarah Jane arrives. She thinks her auntie's met with foul play, so she's sort of investigating that. Brendan arrives. He takes K-9 in his stride. Sarah Jane is still investigating. Brendan's kidnapped. Sarah Jane finds him in time and saves the day. I mean, there's a little bit more to it than that, but that's that's basically all it is. It's like it's like a scary English village horror for children, and, and maybe that's quite an interesting concept in and of itself. Yeah, I think the concept is quite good, and, and, and after we get past the opening titles, that opening, you know, Coven doing sacrificey stuff at night stuff, it is a pretty good opening. That 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 did make me go, well, this is exciting. You know, we're we're in an English village and we're doing occult stuff. That that's usually pretty good, and I, I think it is a good opening. And and look, there's enough plot for fifty minutes. Yeah, just you know, if if this was yeah, just yeah, absolutely. But if you compare this to the King's Demons or Black Orchid or The Awakening, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's not much less plot than any of them. Arguably a bit more than Black Orchid. Yeah, well, that, that that's true as well. Yeah. You mentioned Brendan. Can we have, a, can we have the Brendan chat? Yeah, sure. I, I again walked into this with the received fan wisdom that he was too old and he was terrible and yada, 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 yada. Mm. I found Brendan really likable. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's got that nerdy kind of side to him. As I said earlier, he takes K9 in his stride and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm sure you've got this kind of processor and this kind of memory and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's just... I'm, I'm taking two extra A-levels. Yeah, oh, well, there's that too. <laughs> but, you know, and then he's like, oh, you know, we can do soil analysis. And he's got this whole nerdy, geeky side, but he's not annoying with it. You know, I'm, I'm not saying he's a cool guy, but he's he's fine. He came across to me as the sort of young man that a typical Doctor Who fan watching this as a kid would want to grow up to be. Yes. And we can have, we'll can we have a discussion a bit later about sort of, you know, whether this or the Sarah Jane Adventures gets the casting better. But I've seen a lot of stuff about, no, no, kids want to see younger kids. It's like, well, no, I think kids quite like seeing someone who's a little bit older. Yes. and. How Brendan would go from mainstream audience, I'm less sure. But I could imagine, you know, six-year-old me watching this, looking at Brendan and going, he's he's the guy I would like to be. Mm-hmm. He's smart and he's nerdy and he's well-read, but he's a nice guy and he helps Sarah and he's brave. You know, he, he does all the things you want him to do. I, I think it's really good. Yeah, he's, he's not that prick in the leather jacket, in the studded leather jacket. I can't think of his name. Peter, is it? I can't recall. No, and he's not a, he's not a know-it-all per se. Uh, he he gets excited talking tech with K9. Yeah. But 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 no, and, and look, Ian C is like, I didn't realise until I went, went onto IMDb and checked him out. He actually has a role over a couple of episodes in To Serve Them All My Days, where he plays a, a refugee boy who's basically sent to the school during the start of World War II. Okay. And, and and plays that part really, really well. Um, Sadly, he's at the other end of the series from the end that Matthew Waterhouse was in, so they wouldn't have worked together. Um, right. But but clearly someone in the casting office, because Giles Gibbs Kent is in that as well, so um, clearly someone in the casting office was watching to serve them all my days at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also a few years later in an episode of The Bill where he was unrecognisable. He, he's sort of, you know, grown into his mid-twenties by then and he has an Italian accent and, and everything else I've seen him in, including... I'm just, this is a really good actor and he actually did get 
a certain amount of work basically until he decided he didn't want this to be his career and I think went into the behind the camera stuff. So yeah, I thought Brendan was a really big strength of this. Yeah, yeah, completely agree on that one. Um, other cast members we should probably talk about. Colin Jevons stood out for me. Bill Fraser stood out for me. Um, of course, Colin Jevons had been in The Underwater Menace. I know him best as Tim Stamper from The House of Cards or Max, now help me out here, Max Cooler Quadrupledine or something. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> no, the, 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 the host at the restaurant at the end of the universe, I think in both the radio and TV series. Yes. Yeah, so look, an actor and Bill Fraser... I know he's been in a lot of stuff, but I always know him as Judge Bullingham from Rumpole. <laughs> they both really good actors. The problem is that when you cast Colin Jevons and Bill Fraser, surely you're just saying to the audience, these are the baddies? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's it's a very strange village we're in, Dave. Um, is, it, is it a village of swingers or is it a village of cultists? <laughs> is it both? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, you, you sort of get a sense that, um, yeah, these people aren't going to turn out quite right. Yeah, and, and let's talk about the village. I think, I think that's something you've raised that's really interesting. I hadn't realised till this watch that it is actually set just near Chipping Norton. So I have actually been there. Mm-hmm. Or Chipping Norton, I should say. So I've, I've been there. It would be great to one day get a Canine and Company Clarkson's Farm crossover. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be very cool, but I don't think that's going to happen. I, I, again, I'd always perceived it as being this sort of incredibly isolated village, like a Devil's End, Oldbourne sort of thing, where, you know, you have to drive to get there. Mm. But I think what they're really actually saying is, no, actually, no, there is a town. Chipping Norton is a proper town. And then there are sort of, you know, sub-towns around it. They're not really that isolated. It's just as you get further from the centre, you get more farmland and less houses. But but you're still sort of in a, um, a metropolitan area if you know yeah, what i mean well the cop shop seems pretty small it's like one of those one or two man sort of operations yeah so that's like the local cop shop but there'll be like a proper station in chipping norton yes the same way that there's a train station there and, and all the rest of it so i don't think the village is quite as small as perhaps we're meant to think of it as being because otherwise yes like if you have got a village of 30 people and 20 of them are in the cult that <laughs> that doesn't quite work but i don't think that's what they're actually going for I, i'm still chuckling about the clarkson's farm crossover <laughs> i'm picturing them dancing around the fire you know hecate hecate and clarkson shows up what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> that's right oh the local council won't let me have a car park but you can sacrifice i get it fine you know? <laughs> this is this writes itself it, okay we have to make this happen <laughs> yeah look oh, look i think i think that's the case uh, any thoughts you had rob uh yeah look uh, the the size of the village does play into some of my final thoughts which i'll get to when we get to the final thoughts it does give a slightly claustrophobic vibe that although there may be civilization nearby when the phone is cut for example which which sarah seems to take in the show like oh of course the phone's cut you know but it's still like you're you're cut off this isn't modern times you haven't got a mobile phone or anything brendan's missing the phone's cut off who is an enemy within the village there is a spooky, uh, is spooky the right word? There is a scary sort of vibe to that of suddenly being surrounded by potential weirdos, you know, wherever you look. Yeah, they, they do ratchet that tension up quite well. I, I was quite taken by that scene where Sarah picks up the phone and has to call a switchboard and say, can you put me through? And I go on, okay, you know, we do forget that in the early 80s in some places this was still the case. You didn't even just get to dial somewhere. You had to yeah. get put through, which does sort of add to that sort of creepy 
factor. I, I, I think it's trying and, and, and it succeeds in building up the tension, but it does it by sort of making everybody seem like they could be a bad person. Mm. And that has the strength that Sarah doesn't know where she can turn. And as it turns out, does turn to the wrong person. Yes. And, yes. And, and spurn the advances of the right person. But the fact that the right person or the friendly people are being very creepy and very seductive, <laughs> it's sort of a bit of a cheat and it doesn't quite work on you know regular viewing. Um, and, and look, look, that does sort of bring me to um, talk about the ending of it where I think the biggest flaw in the production is that when you watch a good village murder mystery... There should be enough clues along the way that an audience member watching can go, oh, yeah, I see why it's this person. I think it's that person or we can rule that person out. Mm. Whereas this really does sort of cheat. And in the end, Bill Fraser's the baddie because, of course, Bill Fraser's the baddie. Juno Baker and her husband are not the baddies because that would have been even too obvious, even though they've been very creepy. Yeah. Um, well, they're the swingers, I think. <laughs> they're the swingers, absolutely. We'll have you in bed soon. Don't worry about that. You know, <laughs> you know whereas... Oh, and we're going to make the woman who runs the post office the baddie because no one will have suspected her. Mm. And in, and look, whilst it's good they're doing proper night filming, the filming was so bad that, okay, they take the mask off Bill Fraser, like, of course it's Bill Fraser. Then they take the mask off the, the post mistress, and it's so quick and so badly filmed. I was like, well, who was that? Yeah. And I had to go back to the... I pulled out the novelization and quickly checked to make sure it was her. Yeah. Um, but, but there was no hint about that other than, you know, sort of a, like a what, I think you'll be popular, but, you know, that's what everybody says in English villages. Mm-hmm-hmm. So I, I don't think that aspect of the plot comes together really well. Yeah. I, I mean, where could this have gone as a series, Dave? It, it feels like half the village are the cultists. So surely they wouldn't be in the next story along, you know, like delivering the milk or waving as they walk their dog like, oh, hello again. I, I presume Sarah Jane would have written her book and moved on to a more cosmopolitan location. I mean, she's certainly living away from the village by the time of the Five Doctors, if we take the timeline to be, you know, the same. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point. It's one that I wanted to talk about, because again, when you read a lot of reviews of this, they say, this could never have worked as a series. How could you have her just going around finding another village cult every episode? It would have been ridiculous. It's like, well... They wouldn't have done that. No. So I, I think it's unfair to say that it's set up the wrong idea for a series. Do you think it could have been a bit midsummery where everyone in Midsummer gets murdered every every episode? I was going to say there are plenty of English television shows where you know you have a village of six people and manage to have somebody murdered every week, and yeah. you know, oh look, we just introduced a new family who's been living here for twenty years this week. You know, yeah, yeah. heartbeats now been going for like thirty years. You know, with a village of six, so um, <laughs> you know it, it can be done. And let's let's not just say that Canine and Company's at fault there, but I think it's unfair to say it because I don't think that that's what they would have done. I think what the intention was is to introduce Sarah, put her with Canine explain who she is, give her Brendan, who's sort of the young audience relation figure. And and then, because she doesn't live in that house, that's her aunt's house. Yes. So I assume the idea would be that they would go to a larger city. Now they've all met each other and they would have a more Sarah Jane Adventures type 
setup. The problem is that nobody told the writer or the production team it's not in the story. And and if you were redoing it now, you would have, okay, we've met each other in this nice English village and had this adventure, but I need to go back to London now. Oh, well, actually, I'm on school holidays now. Can I go hang around in London? That'll be much more fun, and I'm a bit creeped out from my experiences here. Yes, and can we bring K-9 with us? Of course we can. And we're all off to London to have adventures or, you know, some other regional city. I, I think that's what you'd do now. Although what's interesting with that, at least with the Sarah Jane, the haughty Sarah Jane that I've pulled out at the start of the show, she says to Brendan, like, I'm not here to be a mother, you know, which sort of adds to the haughtiness the way she delivers that line. Although by the end, she's she's more friendly with Brendan, so maybe that would be more amenable to her. Um, but, but the Sarah Jane who first walks into this show, she, she is not interested in hanging out with Brendan or having a gang, a Scooby gang that solves mysteries. No, and I think that, you know, nowadays that would be a character arc where she goes from, I'm not having kids, I'm worried about my career to, you know what, actually this is kind of making me a better person, I'm happier with kids and a robot dog and let's all go away and have adventures or, yeah. or you know, Aunt Lavinia has to go back to America so Brendan has to go back with, you know, there would be a way to do it and, and you know, o- over time they'll find they actually really like each other's company and they, <laughs> they're great at solving mysteries and, you know, presumably if it went to series, you know, Brendan would meet some girl down the road who would then join the Scooby gang and, yeah. and, 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 and all of that sort of thing. Like, like you could see it going there. So I think, I think it's unfair to say it could never have been turned into a series, but it's the fault of the show that it doesn't flag where it would go. Mm, yeah. Does the Sarah Jane Adventures do it better? Look, obviously, because it dives straight into it. I, I don't think that having the younger kids is a huge difference to having Brendan. And again, I imagine Brendan would have had friends if they'd gone to series, but this is the difference between a pilot that RTD, a more experienced showrunner, is making knowing it's going to series and JNT sort of trying to straddle, oh, no, no, boss, it's just a one-off, I promise, (laughs) with I really kind of want this to become a series and kind of not quite landing either. Yeah, I think in a very particular way, this is the Sarah Jane Adventures Mark 1. It's it's Liz Slade and she's having an adventure. She's got K-9 with her. But if someone was listening to this and they love Liz or they love the Sarah Jane Adventures uh, specifically and they haven't seen K-9 and Company and it's like, oh my God, I've just heard about this from your podcast. I need to see this. I'd caution that this isn't really like the Sarah Jane Adventures at all. It's a whole different era in terms of the look and the feel, the acting and all of that. I think it's being made for a slightly different audience. Liz is at a totally different time of her life. In, in many ways, particularly at the end, she still is much more like the Sarah Jane that left the Doctor than a much older Sarah Jane. It's a hard sort of thing to answer. I think it both is and it isn't the Sarah Jane Adventures Mark One. No, and you're absolutely right. There's a very big difference between a piece of television made in 1981 mm. and a piece of television made in 2008, 2009, whenever the Sarah Jane Adventures came across. Yeah. Um, what is really interesting, though, is that while Sarah Jane is pivotal to both, whilst both give her a young audience identification figure or two to play around with, in this, K-9 is very much the titular character. He's the one that comes in and saves the day. Yes, Sarah gets to do some judo, but, you know, it's K-9 who comes in and lasers all the cult members and saves the day. Was there and a height in there? I think there could have been. I think there was. Um, <laughs> in contrast, though, one big difference is that the Sarah Jane Adventures, whilst K-9 is there, he spends most of his time in a cupboard, yeah. and they clearly don't want K-9 to be the thing that fixes everything and saves the day every episode. That's a really good observation. I mean, I've not watched 
all of the Sarah Jane adventures. I haven't even watched a majority of it. So No, I've watched about half, I reckon. Okay, but even from watching half, you've seen more than me. And that, that's a very interesting observation that I wouldn't have made, for example. Little point from me, a lot of fans have criticised the fact that K-9 is made out of 1981 technology that Brennan can recognise. I've always just assumed that if the Doctor's leaving K-9 in 1981, he's not going to put advanced technology that's going to be stolen and copied and destroy the timelines oh, in there. Oh, but I'll jump in. One of the things, when Brendan is going through the shopping list, oh, you've got this and you got this and you got this, one of the things he says is like a nuclear motor or something. He, yes. He says nuclear. So he, he does have something very technologically advanced. I don't know why Brendan would assume he has it. Um, <laughs> so park that. But I think he does have some, some high tech in him. Oh, it's 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 very high tech, but it's all stuff that is available in the twentieth century. If you know. Oh, what I mean. okay. So so like it's it's not some form of power source that hasn't been discovered by man yet. Like man has discovered nuclear te- technology. You know, okay, the doctors miniaturized it better, and and you know, man has discovered or, or you know, scientists have discovered how to you know program a computer, but the doctors does it in a really advanced way. It has a really mm. advanced program in there. And pre- presumably, Sarah doesn't have to dispose of the uranium every six months or something you, like. You, you know, would hope not. Throw it in the back of the Peugeot and. <laughs> drive down to the local quarry and toss it in or something. I don't know. Well, well, although that is is part of the premise of um, School Reunion, where she's like, you left me this robot with no way to maintain it. So Mm. what did you think was going to happen? So that that is a plot point that Russell T. Davies does does come in. Look, look, I I think that the point is the Doctor's not going to leave technology that is centuries ahead of where mankind is. In 1981, sure, like that would just be a dumb thing for him to do, and and maybe you know maybe this is does mean that Brendan can you know occasionally fix him. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final point I've got before we get to sort of final points is, um, for all of this sort of light-hearted, we're in a village and everybody's just you know play acting a little bit and it's not that serious. Um, we do get a couple of quite nasty moments. The policeman getting killed and sort of finding his body on the road was a moment where I've gone, oh, okay, that's. That's a bit out. Oh, okay. We're, we're being a bit serious. Yeah, he's not. He's not knocked out and like. Oh, I'm a bit groggy. And he gets up. He, he's been killed. He's been killed. His, his body is lying in the road. So you know we are going down there. And the the sacrifice of Brendan. They do go pretty close to doing it. Um, now, as I said, I did read the novel. Or not not the whole novel. I read the last chapter of the novel to make sure I identified who the villains were. In the novel, Brendan is naked. That's interesting because when he was sitting on the wall in that bed sheet they've got him in, there was a there was a big split up his leg, and I thought I'm not sure he's wearing underpants. No, the the novel makes it very very clear that he is he is a naked virgin sacrifice. Yeah. Whereas obviously in in this, um, they put the bare minimum on him, um, but they still oh, go pretty out there. Literally, you know, I, I could tell they were really going for that vibe, which is present in so many sort of hammer films of the 1970s and all of that and yet this is ostensibly for a more kid audience it's like nothing they would do today you know they wouldn't put a young boy or young girl in a in a sheet with nothing underneath and suggest they're about to be killed no way yeah it, it's not quite children of the stones but it's certainly you know a reminder we, we are in 1981 yeah yeah final thoughts from you rob Dave, I think if someone likes K-9 or Sarah Jane, this is a must-watch at least once. Let the theme music just wash over you. You know, just <laughs> marvel at how old the early 80s look these days and, and just have a bit of fun. It doesn't lead anywhere, but it doesn't have to. In fact, if... 
they'd known this wasn't going to get picked up or if JNT didn't have visions of having a whole series, you know, maybe they could have fleshed this out a little more, maybe made it a one-off telemovie sort of thing. You know, I think the motivations and the relationships between the cultists in particular could be teased out a bit more and we could see a bit more of that going on behind Sarah's back and that sort of thing. So, you know, there there is a good story lurking in there that could be teased out a bit more. I, I think it's worth a watch at least once. Yeah, I, I think it's quite a fun watch. I did enjoy getting back to watching it. I think there's a lot to commend it here. It is a good isolated English village. It's got Liz Slade playing Sarah Jane. That's always great. Canine is actually used quite well here and better than I think in a lot of Doctor Who TV stories. Brendan is a great character. I really enjoyed ENC's performance. It's got Bill Fraser. It's got Colin Jevons. Like, this is a really good cast. Yes, the fault is that it's clearly done in a rush. Terence Dudley, who wrote the script, and let's face it, is not a great script writer, no. has written a very basic script that's that's cheating a little bit too much. But as a little adventure introducing canine Brendan and Sarah, it works perfectly lovely. And I agree with you, it does remind you how long ago 1981 was and it was a different <laughs> time. So taken as what it is, I think it's a perfectly enjoyable little artifact I think that the series would have been quite different to the pilot had it ever happened, but you can see the germs of the Sarah Jane Adventures here. Oh, definitely, and that that's fun. That is fun. So I'm, I'm really glad we, we just randomly decided to watch that. <laughs> yeah, it was something different. Now, Rob, we have a number of listener emails. Yeah, emails, Facebook comments, YouTube comments. It's been coming from all directions from our listeners, and we thank you for it. It's really great to know you're out there listening to us and and have your own thoughts that you want to share with the other listeners. Absolutely. So we've got a few to whip through. Rob, do you want to get us started with a regular correspondent from Northern Ireland? Yes, this is Neil C via email. He says, salutations, fellas. I'm going to apologize now because this is long. Okay, where to start? I was speaking to Rob just after the third special. Indeed, he was. And I was going to email in for your feedback show, but alas, I decided to hold back and watch the giggle again. And here I am sending you a revised email whilst I'm currently re-watching The Invasion, which, by the way, is still the best animated story. But anyway... Dave, he's following your lead there, I think. He absolutely is, and I agree. I think, I think that or the Moonbase are the two best. Yeah. The 60th. I'm not going to lie. I feel disappointed after it. Reason being, as much as it was great to see David Tennant and Catherine et al. back, it just didn't feel like a celebration of the show at all. I enjoyed the Star Beast. I thought it was fun, albeit there were some unnecessary lines in it, but more on that later. And I thought it set a decent platform for what I thought would be a good celebration of 60 years of Doctor Who. However, Wild Blue Yonder bored me to tears almost. I'll admit, when I first watched it, I had been out on the lash all night... (laughs) It stuck it on. It stuck it on when home whilst poleaxed. I was like, WTF is going on here. <laughs> when I woke up again the next morning, I thought I'd better watch it again. And it bored me again. I had my hopes up that maybe there would be some cameos from other doctors, but nope. I appreciate what they were trying to do, but it just felt like a story that could have been included in a normal series, not an anniversary special. The Giggle. I thought bringing the toy maker back was great and Neil Patrick Harris put in a very polished performance, but I couldn't help but think we didn't get enough of him. The bi-generation, well, 
I'm sorry, but no, it should have been a proper regeneration as I think it's ridiculous that the 14th Doctor is still there in a back garden. Come on. Sorry, but this is an ego trip from RTD. It feels like it's just him saying David Tennant is the definitive Doctor and his own stewardship of Doctor Who is the definitive era. P.S. This is not a slight on David Tennant at all. He is a super Doctor, or Doctors, I should say, and he is one of my favourites but I just feel this undermines the new Doctor. I've alluded to it before and I'll say it again. I hate how RTD always peddles all these references to his creation Rose and how she is a super companion. Once again, there's so many references to her in these specials when there's no need. But I'll say again that Shudi Gatwa oozes charisma and I think he will shine as the Doctor. All in all, it was great having Doctor Who back on our screens, but this was a massive missed opportunity. It didn't celebrate the show at all, in my opinion. And to think people bash the 50th, it was miles better than this. Multi-Doctors, Tom Baker, the original titles and theme tune, etc, etc. But this was just meh. And last but not least, I know you guys touched on it in your show, but I'm sorry. RTD's take on Davros, do me a favour, what a load of nonsense and the unnecessary lines about trans and binary etc. What was the need? I had absolutely no problem at all with a trans person being cast and I like that Doctor Who is a diverse show, but those lines where the Doctor is being shouted at and all, seriously, wise up. This feels like an ego trip and I find that disappointing. Anyway, back to the invasion. My favourite Troughton era story. Why can't we just go back to simple stories like this with good writing and not overly complicated arcs or trying to out-ridiculous the previous showrunner, etc. Hope you guys had a great Christmas and have a happy new year. Alon Z, Neil as C from Carrick Fergus, Northern Ireland. Thank you, Nilas. That's some good plain speaking facts from Garrick Fergus. I don't agree with everything you said, but I can understand all of it. It's all very, very fair. Yes, and Happy New Year to you too. Absolutely. Peter Thompson via YouTube, who is commenting on some of our recent hot takes. 100% agree with you about RTD trying to divide fans. We had enough of this during the Chibnall era. I always remember the first New Year special resolution. It had 13 trying to call unit, only to be told this had been shut down due to funding issues. This seemed like a blatant anti-Brexit jibe. Brexit certainly divided the UK, so when more than half voted for it, there are going to be people who voted for it watching the episode. It makes no sense to risk potentially alienating half your audience. And for anyone who said those who voted for Brexit were just racist, people from many backgrounds voted to leave, not just white British born. I also, like the two of you, hate the word woke. It's just become a slogan these days used by people who don't have anything interesting to say. So just to say something like, this show sucks, so woke. Someone once tried to argue to me that series 12 was anti-white. I explained the Doctor was white, that the Master was played by an Asian actor for the first time, with Lenny Henry as his evil henchman. Graham was also the voice of reason. The person replied that these were just exceptions. For me, people mix up politics and bad writing. The concepts in Orphan 55 weren't bad, it was the execution. Most people agree that the episode's message was important, but its delivery failed, which basically had the Doctor lecturing the audience. Not seen the Green Death in years, but it's a good example, showing how normal everyday workers can be affected. The invasion of the dinosaurs is quite a fun little romp, and it shows the Doctor at the end being very sorry for the bad guys. Their plan was messed up, but their reasoning was understandable. That episode basically highlights the dangers of pollution, but it doesn't feel too forced. Um, thank you very much for that, Peter, uh, riffing on some thoughts that we had in our special summary episode, Rob. 
Yeah, particularly the thought that when we see a, a writer or even a showrunner of something, not, not even just Doctor Who, but anything, and they, they're like, oh, this episode this week, it'll really piss some people off. It's like, well, why? <laughs> why are you wanting to do this? These are loyal fans of your product. <laughs> why do you want to annoy them? <laughs> why can't we write something inclusive? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, and I agree with the point that he's making, that most people are pretty down with the, the messaging of, you know, being better people and being inclusive people and of course. looking after the planet. Um, but how you deliver that message is what matters. Exactly. I have here an email from Art Lyon. Uh, this is the first time Art's written into us. So hello, Art. Thanks for listening to the show. He says, I really thoroughly enjoyed your recollections of and personal histories with Doctor Who. Ah, this is our 60th anniversary episode, Dave. Just a short month ago. Yeah, just a short month ago. I like how you structured it, going back and forth between you about the different eras of Who and of your lives, rather than one of you going through their whole history with the show and then the other. That's interesting, Dave, because that's something we did deliberately plan. Uh, yes, yes. We were trying to work out how do we cover all this in one go? Yeah. I was aware of Doctor Who during my childhood in the 70s, but mostly because of references in genre pop culture magazines like Starlog. It aired on a local public TV station. Oh, I'm guessing arts in the US. So I would come across it and just didn't get it, I guess. I was a big Star Trek fan, and Who is in many ways a very different kind of show. And there's also a cultural factor. Since I grew up in the US, yep, there we go, the penny drops, and just wasn't exposed to much non-US shows. Decades later, my kids discovered it with the relaunched Who on Netflix here in the US about 10 years ago, and I got sucked into it very quickly. Since then, I've watched all the new stuff at least once, most of it more than once, and some episodes and specials I keep going back to. I've watched a smattering of episodes from the original run, and I'm slowly making my way through from the very beginning. Oh, good on you, Art. I've read some novels and comics, listened to a number of Eighth Doctor productions from Big Finish, I listened to Who podcasts, and I basically can't get enough. I'm a bigger fan than my kids are. My Doctor is probably David Tennant, but I'm also kind of fascinated by Paul McGann in the role. How great is it that previous actors from the show have been able to continue to flesh out their adventures in audio productions? I've been a lifelong Star Trek fan too, and over the past couple of months, with all the excitement about the 60th, I realised that in Doctor Who, I have another Star Trek. A universe of fun, rich, meaningful, hopeful, upbeat, fantastical stories in various media. I'm really grateful for it. Thanks for the great show and for taking time to hear my story. All my best from Art Lion. Well, thank you for writing in, Art. Great to have somebody new write in and also great to hear from someone in the US. And I really understand what you're saying because I think our experience was the reverse. We got smashed with British sci-fi and even a little bit of New Zealand sci-fi here and there. Yeah. But Trek really wasn't a big thing out here at all. Even Next Gen was basically relegated to sort of the graveyard slot pretty quickly out here yeah. in, in the 90s. Um, and you know, Trek was something I really had to seek out and find. And, and, and you know, there are these cultural differences. I mean, the, the famous example is that Blake Seven is British, so it founds a federation that's evil and terrible and wants to destroy everything. And America does the Star Trek and founds a federation that goes out to share peace and enlightenment and, you know, yeah. just being really nice to each other. Um, <laughs> Just really different types of uh, cultures. Yeah, absolutely. An email here from another regular, Shane Rolfe, who says, Loved your 60th special show. Thank you, Shane. That's a great way to start. Hmm. Loved your 60th special show. For what it's worth, I agree with Rob. Oh, it's a good way yeah! to start. <laughs> I agree with Robert Reed Davros. 
If you don't like the character, just don't use it rather than change it altogether. Also seems weird considering you then have a special with a unit scientific advisor kicking butts whilst being wheelchair bound. Make more heroes like her then if you want to combat perceived negative opinions of somebody who is half Dalek and not even in a wheelchair. It surprises me that a fan nerd like RTD would think this. I'll just jump in, Dave. Although he says he agrees with me, I think you also made the point that if you didn't want to do Davros traditionally, just just don't use the character. I think you made that point yourself. Yeah, look, I mean, we were both sort of on a similar page to that, but yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. My first memory of Doctor Who was being terrified by those bug-eyed creatures and those silver robots fighting in caves, and then someone was trying to undo a buckle of the funny man with the scarf and it would blow them up. Mm. I think we know what that one was. I think we do. Then this screaming noise transferred into spooky music and I was trapped in this tunnel and felt claustrophobic. Yep, my first impression of Doctor Who scared the heebie-jeebies out of me. (laughs) After that, and because of that, I think is why I became a Cyberman fan. I can vaguely recall snippets of Doctor Who for the rest of the 70s, especially K-9 being stuck in a rowboat. But I would not become a true nerd collect-all-the-books type of fan until the repeat of season 18 turned into the new season 19 back in 1982, and I've been a fan ever since. Thanks to Davo and John Mark Lefissier for cementing that relationship. And yes, as I mentioned, those program guides from Jean Marc Lefissier were a big deal for that era. Huge. Cheers. Keep up the good work, Shane Roth. Yeah, that's really nice. And we we have a review of Revenge of the Cyber, which I'm sure Shane's heard, but if uh, other listeners haven't heard it, go and look back through our back catalogue. Absolutely. Dave, I'll continue. I've got a piece here from Glenn Hewitt via Facebook. He says, hi, hope you're all well. I just wanted to say thank you for a great podcast. In recent times, I had moved away from Doctor Who. The excitement of the 60th and the various trailers pulled me back into the world of the Doctor. Not that I fully left, but it wasn't really a main focus. I was still watching the odd story and grabbing the lost TV episodes via Audible. In between watching recent Doctor Who documentaries and favourite stories such as Spearhead from Space... All of this has led me to your show, and as such, I'm working my way through your past episodes. Oh, God, I wonder where you've started, Glenn. (laughs) Surely not at episode one. Oh, no. Uh, Loved your overview of Series 8 from 1971, and Dave probably won't remember, but I frequently used to post comments and the like on his goodies podcast. All the very best, and take care. No, thank you, Glenn. I absolutely remember you're an active uh, participant in the Goodies Pirate podcast, so uh, thank you for moving across to the Doctor Who show. Brilliant. A quick one on Facebook from Nick Pickering. Absolutely love the show. It's passionate, informative, fun, and not negative or combative. I don't know how you guys manage it, but I'm glad you do. And thank you for the great year of podcasts and looking forward to the new year. Um, yeah, wait till he hears our uh, review of uh, Ruby Road, Rob. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we were not negative or combative there as well, although we did disagree a bit. Oh, we disagreed for sure. But I, th- I think, you know, the listeners like that. Thank you, Nick. That That's lovely. I'm going to move on now. Doris Day is back, Dave, uh, via YouTube. And this is in response to our top five companion debut stories episode of The List Makers. Doris says, good choices. Mine would be, in no particular order, Martha in Smith & Jones, along with Graham my favorite new who companion for all the same reasons as yours they don't mess the character up either i'm not a fan of rtd who but he got martha right in so many ways freema was fabulous too here here vicky in the rescue what dave said 
instantly likable. I love the scene at the end where she has the little chat with the doctor before joining the crew. Then I've got no one. That Sad is a face. great scene, yes. Well done. Yeah. Joe in Terror of the Autons. Instant adorability overload. Kooky. So 70s. How could the Doctor not fall in love with her? Autons are back. Say hi to the Master. The chair, the policeman, the stunt in the quarry, the carnival masks, the daffodils, the target novel. <laughs> oh, what a great <laughs> yep. comment there. Yep. Uh, Sarah Jane. Funnily enough, I disliked Sarah Jane Smith at the time. I wanted Joe back. And this new woman behaved like a teacher, not a hippie. However, a great journey starts with a single step. Sontarans, pseudo-historical, Sarah Jane Smith getting stuck in straight away. We learn a lot about her and the type of character she is throughout these four episodes of The Time Warrior. And I still miss the character and the actor. Next up, the pilot and Bill. Bill was my favourite thing of the Capaldi years. That one season was a good move. The pilot gives her stuff to do. The Dr. Bill dynamic is cute. And we're left with unanswered questions that are taken care of via Bill later on. Almost chose the woman who fell to Earth for Graham, but unfortunately... The too many companions thing causes issues from the word go. I liked his backstory and I liked Grace. Although, did we need a fourth companion? In fact, I wish Chibbers had replaced Yaz with Grace. That's actually a comment I've made before, Dave. Uh, A young lad travelling the universe with his nan and his nan's boyfriend. That could have worked. Belated Merry Christmas. Enjoy the shooty. I'm still not watching, but I am listening. Thank you very much, Doris Day. Now, Rob, we've had a late-breaking piece of feedback. We're going to just sneak in at the last moment. Yes, Dave. What I have here is a a Facebook comment from Damien Isaacs, who's just made it in in time for the episode. He says, Hi, gents. As a cricket tragic living in Perth, I watched the cricket first. 7.30am on Boxing Day is the best. My wife and I loved the episode for what it is and had to do. A light Christmas romp that had to properly introduce the new Doctor and companion. Yeah, the plot was thin, but most importantly, compared to the Chibnall Whittaker era, it brought the fun back. We really like the energy of Shooty, but I've always said the best Doctor moments are when they need to get serious, and we then find out what kind of Doctor they really are. We didn't see it here, but I'm confident it's coming. I'm leaning to Mrs. Flood being a wink and a giggle appearance, but I'd bet a lot of money Ruby's mum will show up again. Ultimate fan theory, Ruby's mum is Rose. So much more to unpack, but I'll leave it with my favourite line, health and safety, gin and tonic department, which I can see used in clubs for a whole generation. Enjoyed your hot take as always. Looking forward to the next season. That's interesting. There's nothing in that that I would disagree with. It just landed slightly different for me. It's weird how that happens. It really is. But no, thank you for that quick piece of feedback. Thank you. And we've had other comments, little comments here on X, and, you know, I'm sure more will come in on our YouTube uploads and so on. Uh, Apologies we couldn't fit them in before the end of the year, simply because you hadn't written to us at the time of recording this. No, but thank you to everyone who's written in over 2023. There's been a lot of new names come through, and that's always really exciting for us. Super exciting. Love it. Rob, very quickly, what have you been watching this month other than Doctor Who? Oh, good question. First up, I've been watching One Piece, which is a show where I hadn't seen the anime before. I've never read the manga, yet I dived in feet first and I loved it. This is on Netflix, Dave, and I think it's something where you need to like the aesthetic. You need to believe in a world where a boy can be made of rubber. 
and there are really bizarre pirates roaming around and although it feels like the 1700s people are wearing t-shirts and there are neon lights in bars and things like that it's a bizarre show but the overall story of having a crew of friends who'll stand by you i think is super strong and so well done i love it I've also watched Rebel Moon and really enjoyed myself. It's getting slain out there by the Zack Snyder haters, but I couldn't care less about them. You know, when the level of discourse is along the lines of, oh my God, Snyder has ripped off Seven Samurai for this. He's a hack. But if you ask them, did George Lucas also rip off the Hidden Fortress to make Star Wars? You know, the mental gymnastics they go into is really quite extraordinary. Is it a perfect film though? No. Will it be better in the longer R-rated version? Probably we'll see and finally i've been watching a, an old tv show called whites which is an alan davis vehicle from about 2010 where he's the executive chef at a hotel he's a bit past his prime his sous chef is darren boyd who was in the original dirk gently series as uh, Stephen mangan's offsider as dirk his restaurant manager is Catherine parkinson from the it crowd his clueless waitress is Izzy Sooty from Peep Show. This has a lot of cool people in it, and it's really light, funny stuff, and I really like it. Only six episodes for Whites. That's very interesting. I have watched the first couple of episodes of One Piece, and I did enjoy it. That that lead actor has got a huge amount of charisma. Massive. Massive. So yes, yeah, so Mexican I, guy, yeah. Yeah, so I will go back and finish that. I have been watching on Disney The Artful Dodger, mm-hmm. which is a series starring Thomas Brody Sangster, who some may know as the kid in Love Actually, and he's done a whole lot of other things since then. And David Doctor Who? And indeed, Doctor Who, yes. He's in my favourite yeah. new series, Doctor Who. Um, and David Threlfall, who's again, you know, in a, a lot of wonderful stuff. This is set sort of um, 18, 20 years after the events of The Tale of Oliver Twist, and it is set in colonial Sydney, which Mm -hmm. is a really interesting setting. I got through the first series of this very easily. Good actors, good characters, a good setting, just kind of really fun Disney TV, so that was really good. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have now watched the final season of The Crown. The first four episodes, which was the Diana stuff, I was utterly bored by. I've never been particularly fascinated by Diana and I just found her character here and the story here utterly dull but the last six episodes that wrapped up the series I actually thought were pretty good um Tony Blair is probably the best written of all the prime ministers they've done I've okay. tend- tended to find the prime ministers have been a bit of a weak link in this series but Tony Blair was really well done uh William was really well done the the departure of Princess Margaret was probably a highlight very very sad but 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 just very well done and look once you get used to the Peter Morgan fantasies out there and you sort of just accept that, okay, this didn't happen, but this is Peter Morgan being a bit creative and a bit dramatic and putting the soap into it. Once you have that mindset, I think it works really, really well. I struggled with the middle of the crown, loved the first couple of seasons, but it's ended on more or less of a high. My biggest fear with that, Dave, is there is a kind of person out there, though, who watches fantasy and don't seem to realise it's fantasy, or they do, but they will still make comments like, oh, wasn't that character a real bastard for what he did? And they're talking about the real-life person based on something that happened in a fantasy. I find that very dangerous and weird. Maybe it's just the historian in me. I don't know. No, I look, I absolutely agree. That that was a concern that I needed to get past to get back to enjoying the series. It's the same as the, the Doctor Who are an adventure in space and time TV drama, mm. which it's a wonderful piece of drama, but particularly the back end of that, there's just stuff there that just didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it, it eases very much on the 
production team's excuses for getting rid of William Hartnell rather than some of the realities of, of what happened down there. And and again, like as a piece of drama, if you know the truth, you go, okay, that's a really good piece of drama. But it's always a concern that our fans are going to watch it and go, I now know the history. It's like, well, actually, yeah. no, you don't. You know the fantasy. Exactly. Next time, Rob. Next time, Dave. Well, this is all you because I, I'm going on a break. You are. We're having our annual January summer special with the chaps over at 42 to Doomsday and Spacefall. Uh, we will be doing an episode in January. And the main part of that episode, we are going to be chatting about a particular story. And as always, we are going to get the audience to vote on which story that is. So I have a few nominations here. Now, everybody didn't see everybody else's nomination, so we'll see if there's a pattern coming up. But Mark from 42 to Doomsday has nominated The Rybos Operation. Mm-hmm. Richard from Spacefall has nominated The Androids of Tara. Yes. I am nominating The Keys of Marinus. Right. And Rob, you're going to give us our fourth, and I don't know what that is. Please tell us. I, I feel like I've picked badly because you've already got two Tom Bakers, but... Mine was Robots of Death. Robots of Death it is. So we have three Toms and a Hartnell to vote for, but that's okay. We're going to have a very very old school fan discussion, I suspect. So that's coming up in January. We've got lots more planned for 2024. We've been working through our early schedules at the moment, just tossing ideas around. I think we know what novel we're going to talk about at some point, Rob, Mm -hmm. and we know a couple other things we're going to do. Um, I think that come February or March, we're very keen to do our ultra cold takes on the star wars prequels yes and i mean i say i'm having january off but i I will come back and do a list makers with you dave we've got to record what is it humanity is where humanity is the monster top five stories where humanity is the monster yep that will be out in january um so we're gonna be talking doctor who we're gonna be talking star wars um i'm determined for reasons i cannot explain I was reminded of the new Tomorrow People series, the 1990s version of it, which has sat on my DVD shelf for probably about 10 years, never watched. I I did watch it when it came out in the 90s, but haven't watched it since. I'm going to watch that again and um, see if it's terrible or it's good nostalgia. We'll find out. Hopefully it's going to be a fun year. I think it's going to be a great year, Dave. Really do. Fantastic. Well, everybody who listened to us in 2023, thank you very much. We look forward to talking in 2024, where, of course, we have a whole season of Shudigatwa's 15th Doctor. Rob, we are going into a year knowing that there is a season of Doctor Who. This is not a frequent enough occurrence. (laughs) We should embrace it. We should enjoy it. But we've spoken for long enough now. I've had a great time. I'll see you in the new year. I've been Dave. I've been Rob. Happy New Year, everyone. We'll speak again very soon next year. Bye-bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>